Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I love presenting Babbage. Every week, I get to explore some of the thorniest questions at the cutting edge of human understanding. In the past year alone, we've covered everything from the search for extraterrestrial life to the development of mRNA vaccines and a new frontier in theoretical physics. But it's not often that I get to go right back to basics. So in this episode, I'm headed back to school for a refresher course and learning a lot of new things as well as we explore the fundamental building blocks of life itself. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and you're listening to Babbage, The Economist's weekly podcast on technology and science. Over the past six weeks, The Economist's finest science journalists have been investigating life. What is it? Like, literally, what are living things made of? How do those structures, from the molecule to the cell to the organ, work together to make up a whole living being? What differentiates one sort of living thing from another? And how do all the myriad species around me fit together? This architecture of life has been distilled into six fantastic essays that we call Schools Briefs that you can read at your leisure. The link is in this week's show notes. And in this episode, we'll be exploring what scientists believe life to be and how they think it works. Biology is exceptional in science. Jeff Carr is a unique collection of genetic information that put together makes up The Economist science editor. It creates order out of chaos, whereas the universe is generally about creating chaos out of order. Jeff, I need to understand life. Where should I start? All living organisms are either individual cells or made of cells or... Uh, made of things that are secreted by cells. So your bones, for example, uh, have cells in them, but uh, an awful lot of mineral material as well, but it's all secreted by cells. The individual molecules inside a cell are not alive, but together they make something that is alive. Life is, life is as much a process as anything. So everything that makes up a living organism is either cells or the products of cells. Okay, so that's our starting point, the cell the unit that makes up all living things. The next step is to understand what's happening inside it. Cells are compartments, and in our body we have about 30 trillion of these compartments. Professor Alison Woolard is a molecular biologist at the University of Oxford. The crucial thing about a cell, as like any compartment, is it has to have a boundary. And so around cells is a membrane that encloses the cell. But there's also compartments within the cell, and particularly in in our cells, which are quite complicated. There's lots of compartments which are specialised for different activities. So the most important compartment of a cell is called the nucleus. And the nucleus is where the DNA is. 
outside of the nucleus in the cell, you still have some other important compartments. And so probably the most important of those would be the mitochondria. And because the mitochondria are responsible for producing energy. And so the mitochondria are like the batteries of the cell. But I'm interested in what makes me, me. So that would be DNA, right? The deoxyribonucleic acid that has all my genetic information. How does that work? So in the nucleus, you have the DNA, and it's the DNA, which is a large polymer of nucleotide bases and a backbone that folds itself up very, very small into our chromosomes. So the chromosomes are divided up into genes, and each gene is responsible for making a particular protein, by and large. Although not all genes make proteins, some genes just make an intermediate called RNA, and that's another area of really intense research at the moment to try to understand how RNA works. Proteins are produced from the DNA code in the nucleus of cells, and then those proteins go all to all different parts of the cell and help the cell do its work. What is a protein and how does it help the cell do what it needs to do? Proteins are the workhorses in cells. And so they do everything. They do a lot of chemistry and so on. A protein is a collection of molecules called amino acids. And if you imagine a protein is like a necklace, which consists of lots of beads on a string, then each amino acid would be like one of the beads. If you take your necklace and then you scrunch it up in your hand so it has a three-dimensional shape, the particular sequence of beads of amino acids on this string dictates the precise way that this collection of amino acids folds up. Um, And that's what determines the shape and all the properties of that protein. And we're really only just starting to understand how um, the sequence of amino acids gives rise to a particular shape of protein. Okay, so proteins are the workhorses and the genes instruct them what to do. But how do you get different cells with different properties? Why don't they all do the same thing? Yeah, so that's exactly the problem, isn't it? How is it that cells know what to do? And they all do very different things, but they've all got exactly the same genes in them. And the answer is that some genes are switched on and some genes are switched off. In the heart cells, all the genes that are required um, to make proteins that are to do with being heart are switched on. And genes that are required to make proteins that are to do with being liver or kidney or skin or eye, they're switched off. And sometimes we talk about genes being expressed. So when a gene is expressed, it means that that DNA sequence is made into protein. That gene is expressed in the form of protein. So in this process of transcribing DNA sequences, copying the information, what happens when the message changes? How do mutations happen? A mutation means any change in the sequence of DNA in a gene or in a chromosome. And that could be just one of the bases, A, C, G, or T, might change, or a base might get lost, or a base might get added, or a small section of DNA might get lost. We call that a deletion. Or a large section of DNA might get lost. Um, And these sorts of mutations, these errors, 
can slip in for all sorts of different reasons. So one of the reasons that mutations happen is simply because of environmental factors. So if you go out in the sunlight, the UV light will penetrate your cells and can damage the DNA. It can actually cause these bases to change into another one or to get lost, right? Other times, just the natural processes in cells. So every time a cell divides, all the DNA, all of that whole genome has to be copied right, into a new version to put in the daughter cell. And sometimes that goes wrong. It's actually error prone. And so sometimes just the process of copying DNA can introduce mutations. And then what happens? What are the consequences when you get one of those mutations in the sequence? Well, what they do is they ultimately change the amino acids that are produced from the DNA. And if an amino acid is different, then the shape of the protein is different. And therefore, that protein might do different things or it might not work at all. So you think, oh, God, mutations sound really bad. But actually, mutations are the whole reason that we're here on this planet. Because without mutations, you couldn't have evolution. Because when a gene acquires a mutation, it's going to make a slightly different set of proteins. And so the organisms that are composed of those cells might have slightly different properties. And it might make them more competitive in a particular environment. So without mutation, we would still be, you know, very simple life forms in the primeval soup. So thank goodness for all those mistakes in the copying of the information that have made us who we are. But mutations also cause lots of problems. Just one tiny change in the genetic code can be enough to create huge difficulties in the organism that carries it. Sickle cell disease is a defect in one of the hemoglobin proteins. Dr. Alina Pants is a senior scientist at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Genomics Institute. Genomics is the study of how an organism's complete set of DNA fits and works together. In the adults, there are two main proteins that form hemoglobin, alpha and beta. And in sickle cell disease, there is a mutation, which is a one nucleotide change in the beta hemoglobin. And that causes the protein to be slightly different, which means that when uh, oxygen levels are down, then this protein tends to stick together and, and changes the form of the red blood cell and that causes um, episodes of, of severe pain. And because this mutation and the effect it has on the red blood cells um, gives a certain protection to malaria infection, then this genetic trait is maintained in certain populations, particularly in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, where malaria is a serious, serious health problem. The good news is that the genetic malfunction that causes sickle cell disease can be treated. Scientists are able to use the processes of fundamental biology to their advantage using a very special kind of cell. Here's Professor Alison Woolard again. Most of our cells in our body are pretty specialised. 
So, you know, your heart cells are not going to suddenly turn into kidney cells. And that's because of these instructions that, I, that those cells have in terms of what do I switch on and what do I switch off. Stem cells have the property that they can make more of themselves or they can produce a different kind of cell. And there's a whole range of different cells that you can imagine wanting to produce from a stem cell. Stem cells are the only way to cure sickle cell disease. This is where Dr. Alina Pance's work at the Sanger Institute comes in. It involves using stem cells to produce healthy blood cells to replace the sickle cells. They can do this in a few different ways. The obvious one is to do a bone marrow transplant for which you would need to find a good genetic match to the person and then irradiate to eliminate the person's blood stem cells and then repopulate the bone marrow with the transplanted cells. And this is a procedure that has been done for many years for many sorts of diseases, but it has quite a lot of secondary issues, mainly from the immune point of view. And more recently, of course, with the advent of genome editing, many attempts and trials have been done to try and correct the mutation or find alternative ways to correct the disease in the same person's stem cells and then put them back. And this is one of the most exciting things that stem cell technology and genome editing has brought about. It is still early days for these potentially revolutionary techniques using the cell's own power to fix things when they go wrong. There have been some trials uh, and reports in individual people who have gone through these type of therapies and they report a good success. And the future prospects of these uh, of of these interventions to cure not just sickle cell disease, but other genetic diseases is very positive. At the moment, they are not scalable. They are very experimental still. And there are many things that we don't know yet. What happens on the long term when the correction or genetic manipulation to, to, to overcome the disease is done Is that the only thing that happens in the cell or are there other changes that happen at the same time? And that makes um, these trials very delicate. What we have seen in animals, for example, is that it works. So the hope is still up, but we need to know more before these technologies can be applied more widely. Jeff, my journey so far to understanding the building blocks of life has been enlightening, but I have to say I'm surprised by how many unknowns there still are. What do you think is the most important problem in cell biology that still needs to be solved? I think one of the most important problems in cell biology is to understand what's going on inside the nucleus because of the way the chromosomes are put together and how they're interacting with each other there. At the very other end of the scale, the other very interesting problem in the biology of organisms is how brains work. We know approximately how uh, nerve cells work. Uh, We know how the signals are transmitted uh, along nerve cells and we know how the nerve cells talk to each other, but we don't know how information is processed and therefore how brains work. So those, I think, are two of the most interesting problems in biology. 
I think there's sufficient material for another Babbage special in that, so watch this space. Alright, coming up, we'll be zooming right out from the scale of cells and molecules to ask, what makes a species? And where did our species, Homo sapiens, come from? Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. If you're listening to and understanding this podcast, you're probably a human. Humans, or Homo sapiens, are a species. Jeff, biologically speaking, what does that mean? Pragmatically and historically, species have been a, a way of ordering nature that human beings have imposed on nature. And so the correct answer to your question is it's done bureaucratically. A naturalist comes along and thinks that he or she might have found a new species. And to register that, you do two things. Um, You publish a paper or a monograph describing the species, and you provide what's called a type specimen. And the type specimen defines the species. Anything which subsequently is shown to be the same species as the type specimen is a member of that species. And if the type specimen is subsequently shown to be a member of a pre-existing species, then that species vanishes. The system is loosely administered by various international bodies, you know, you know, one for animals, one for plants, one for microbes and that sort of thing. So why is there a debate over how a species should be defined? Uh, well, people would like, because they're scientists and uh, orderly, they would like to have a close definition of what's going on. I mean, you can define what a carbon atom is. A carbon atom is an atom that has a nucleus with six protons. And if you take a proton out of it or add a proton to it, it ceases to be carbon. So people search for that sort of thing with species and don't really quite find it. But a useful working definition was come up with a boat called uh, Ernst Meyer in the 1940s. And he suggested that a useful way of looking at species is to ask what interbreeds, particularly what interbreeds in the wild. So species are then defined as populations that have species barriers. They're sort of closed gene pools. And that's a useful working definition because it quite often turns out that this is the case. But it's not a perfect definition because there are groups of animals and plants which can interbreed and it's all very messy and subjective and that's what you'd expect because these things are evolving the species barriers don't come into existence suddenly they come into existence by evolution attempts to define a species by their essence rather than by comparison with a specific example or specimen date back to the greek philosopher aristotle in the fourth century bc but it would be another 2,000 years before a Swede named Carl Linnaeus introduced the helpful idea of combining genus, or the general type of organism, with the specific species into a binomial name like Homo sapiens. 
Still, even a hundred years later, in the 1850s, Charles Darwin wrote exasperatedly that attempting to define a species was, quote, trying to define the undefinable. It was Darwin who, in On the Origin of Species, put forward the idea that what creatures of the same species shared was common ancestry. In other words, they were more closely related to each other than to anything else. Take Homo sapiens again. So the earliest Homo species that we know of would be Homo habilis that emerged in Africa about two million years ago. Dr. Viviane Slon is a paleogeneticist at the University of Tel Aviv. And then later on, we have Homo erectus that also came out of Africa and then migrated out of Africa. And this then developed possibly into what we know as Homo heidelbergensis. In Europe, we then have possibly coming out of those Neanderthals in Western Europe and Denisovans in Eastern Eurasia. It's a complicated and hazy picture. Modern humans emerged from various subspecies. The groups which, to pick up on Ernst Meyer's rule of thumb that Jeff mentioned, could and did often interbreed. One of the mechanisms for a new species to arise is geographical isolation, where different groups or different individuals physically get separated from each other. And then as they're separated from each other, they each evolve new traits that then become barriers to mating. If you're thinking of the classical biological definition of the species, that is, if two individuals can mate and produce viable offsprings, then Neanderthals and Denisovans wouldn't be considered different species rather than different groups. In 2018, Dr. Viviane Slon and her colleagues at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology published their analysis of a bone from a cave in southern Siberia. What we found was that the DNA of this individual was almost equal parts Neanderthal and Denisovan. And from doing analyses on, let's say, the genealogy of this individual, of this girl, we were able to retrace that her mom was a Neanderthal and her dad was a Denisovan. And this was the first time we had direct evidence for interbreeding between these two different groups of ancient humans. But we also saw in her genome that the Denisovan father had himself a Neanderthal ancestor, something we estimate between 300 and 600 generations before he lived. That's roughly 10 to 15,000 years. So we do have evidence for interbreeding between this group happening over and over again. Modern humans emerged because Homo sapiens eventually became the dominant species among the multiple groups that were repeatedly colliding and overlapping and interbreeding. But how did they do it? Homo sapiens appear to have arised in Africa about 300,000 years ago. And then somewhere possibly around 50,000, 60,000 years ago, they left Africa and started colonizing the world. They then mated with these Neanderthals and these Denisovans that were already outside of Africa. Now, how we became to be the only group of humans around today, there are... As many hypotheses about these are there are researchers in the field, I think. Certainly people talk about being more uh, immune to certain pathogens that they encounter. There's talk about violence, sort of just a hostile takeover of the 
territory of Neanderthals and Denisovans. There are talks about them being more versatile in their uh, ability to develop new tools and to adapt to new environments. But another thing that one has to take into account is that since our ancestors mated with these other groups of hominins, these Neanderthals and these Denisovans, in a way, still live within us. So perhaps they really didn't go extinct as much as they got absorbed into the human population that came out of Africa. If you look at the genomes of everybody living today that is not of African ancestry, you're likely to find about 1% to 3% of DNA from Neanderthals. And then if you look at people living today in Oceania, you'll find up to 5 or 6% of their genome coming from Denisovans. That genetic inheritance, gained at the blurry edges of what defines our species, still shapes human life to this day. There are variants, for example, of Neanderthals that affect our health. One of the most recent up-to-date examples is a genetic variant affecting the risk to develop severe COVID-19. In that case, if you got the Neanderthal variant, well, you're more likely to develop uh, severe COVID-19 if you're exposed to it. So these parts of these ancient DNA still affect how we react to our environment today. All this genetic information, encoded in the DNA of every cell, of every body, of every human alive today, is still evolving. We do know that there have been relatively recent responses that you can track. A nice one is uh, lactose tolerance. Mammals are defined by the fact that the mothers feed uh, their offspring with milk, which they generate from their bodies. And this contains a sugar called lactose. And young mammals have an enzyme called lactase, which can digest this and make use of it. Uh, When they're weaned, they lose this enzyme. And so uh, if you feed milk to most adult mammals, it doesn't go particularly well. They can't digest it and it's uncomfortable and... This is why you shouldn't put out milk for hedgehogs. But a lot of human beings, the adults have lactase as well. The gene carries on working. The reason for that is that we domesticated cattle. There's a single point mutation which keeps the thing switched on into adulthood so that groups of people who herd cattle or are descended from those who herd cattle are able to drink milk and and profit from it. That happened since the invention of agriculture, which is in the past 10,000 years, and yet it's a very widespread mutation. So there are undoubtedly things like that going on all the time. As we change our environment, we affect our evolution, probably in ways that we can't predict. Our our descendants will have to look back and say, oh, yeah, that happened because of X. Jeff, I've learned so much from our show. I've learned not to leave out milk for hedgehogs. And I speak (laughs) for all of our listeners when I ask, sapiens or sapiens? (laughs) Uh, It doesn't matter. (laughs) Great, Jeff. This was fantastic. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, Ken. I really enjoyed it. Our dear listeners, please go and check out the rest of the amazing essay collection that Jeff and our other colleagues have put together over the past few weeks. They're detailed, stunningly illustrated, and accessible to anyone wanting to get to grips with the basics of biology, from the scale of the molecule all the way up to that of the planet. And it's all at economist.com slash biology-briefs. You do need a subscription to read them, so if you're not a subscriber, this is a perfect time to be one. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer for the best introductory offer. Both of those links are in the show notes. 
Thanks to my biology teachers, Jeff Carr, Professor Allison Woolard, Dr. Alina Pance, and Dr. Viviane Slon. And thank you for listening to Babbage. The producers are Jason Hoskin, Abby Soye Oshindairo, and Amika Shortino Noland. Nico Rofast is the sound engineer, and the program's editor is Sandra Schmueli. I'm Kenneth Cukier, part Neanderthal, part Denisovan, largely mutant. And in London, this is The Economist. Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies. I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. <laughs> I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday wherever you get your podcasts and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.